Today on Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. This is contrasting the believing response of the Samaritans that weren't even Jews and the unbelief of people that knew him well. And I think there's a lesson there. The danger is that you become familiar with things of God. You handle them so much that they become commonplace. And often a person with the best spiritual opportunity are blind to what God is doing. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed, and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your Sometimes being familiar with Scripture breeds contempt towards the Lord as people know the story but have lost the meaning behind it all. Make sure that doesn't happen to you as you join us for Grow in Grace, a ministry of the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands. We're going to be covering John chapter 4 today with Pastor Ed Ray. We join him now at verse 43. We're in John chapter 4, verse 43. As we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, John writes, Now after two days, he departed from there, and he went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday, At the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it gives us insights and understanding into you, your character, and what you see as critical in our lives. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us now that we might grow in you. Do that, we ask, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people agreed by saying, Amen. Well, we find ourselves here in the Gospel of John as we're working our way through. John's talking about signs again. Now, when we first started this Gospel, I explained to you that John is careful to use the word for miracles that means a sign. We all know about signs, you know. We have red ones that say stop and we stop and ones that say school zone and we slow down and signs are meant to help us navigate life. 
Signs are used by almost every business as a way of advertising. When you drive by McDonald's, it says, has the golden arches, and you know cheap burger is close at hand. The sign says grocery store, you go in there and you don't expect to find auto parts and when it says auto parts, etc. So John is using the word though to describe seven miracles that Jesus did. And he has narrowed the thousands of miracles that Jesus has done down to just seven. In chapter 20, when we get towards the end of the gospel, he says he did that for a very specific reason. These seven signs that he chose are ones that so show us, the reader, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing that, we might have eternal life. John's whole purpose for writing the gospel is that people would get saved reading his gospel. So these signs have characteristics in them. These miracles that Jesus did, these seven point to the fact that Jesus is God, that he in fact has supernatural powers way beyond any person that's ever healed, that he did things completely differently than others. And we saw in the first sign that John said, Jesus is changing water to wine. A spectacular miracle from a science standpoint, from a canvas standpoint. Inorganic water gets turned into organic wine in an instant, but wine by its very nature has vintage, has time in it. So he becomes the Lord of time and space because he doesn't touch the water that turned into wine in the first sign. Only God is the Lord over time and space. This second miracle, he says the second sign, happened very close to where the first one happened. Cana, in this village uh, where the water was turned to wine, Jesus is leaving that area and this a royal official, will say. He's a nobleman. He's probably from Herod's family. And he meets Jesus in the same general area. And Jesus is going to heal his son without ever seeing him, without ever touching him, without being anywhere near him. So Jesus supernaturally knows what's wrong with this boy. He is the Lord of healing. And I'm at a loss for words to explain how he did that. He doesn't tell us how he did that. But like with the water to wine, he doesn't touch the kid. He doesn't bring some antibiotic and slip it in the water that they're giving to the kid or something like that. He's this Lord who is powerful, who understands nature. He understands the human body. He understands that because he made it. The creator understands the creation. And he is a God of logic. He is a God who wants us to see that it makes sense. In fact, entices us to gather into science and discovery of what the human being is like and what science is like. I went through many years of studying graduate school's biochemistry, and it was an adventure in evangelism. I, I sat in many lectures of atheist chemists 
talking about the water molecule, and I'm the only guy in the class that's in the back of the lecture hall weeping because he's talking about the way Jesus put the world together. Anyway, it's, it's, okay, you're weird. Okay, let's move on. So we come to this section where Jesus has moved from, if you were with us last time, the Samaritan village of Sychar, and it's a kind of a no-go area where Jews would never travel. They would, Israel's a long state, kind of like New Jersey, and there were three ways from north to south. Over on the sea, there was the Via Mara, the way of the sea. Over on the Jordan River, there was the way up the Jordan River, which was on the eastern side, inland side. But there was a center one that went right through this area of Samaria. But they wouldn't go there because the Samaritans were a different race. Pastor, you're saying they're prejudiced. Oh, yeah. As prejudiced as anything you've ever seen in the South, anything you've ever seen on TV, anything you've ever read about. And Jesus breaks through that by going and talking to a woman, you'll remember, at a well. And she was a Samaritan woman, which means she had three strikes against her because Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Jews would never, a Jewish rabbi would never talk to a female in public and she was racially different. Other than that, there were no problems. <laughs> God just ran right over all those barriers and took the least likely candidate in the village to talk to. You know, you'd think God would understand something about holiness and he'd say, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go to the, the purest person in the Samaritan village. No, he chooses a woman who's been divorced five times and is shacking up with a guy who comes to the well in the middle of the day because the other women were talking about her because she had done so many bad things publicly. The disciples come and they look at Jesus talking to this woman and they're dumbfounded. Isn't that wonderful? That God goes to sinners He's still, still, still doing it today. Still doing it this morning at the first service. I assume he'll do the same at this service. <laughs> Talk to sinners to show them who he is, to draw them in. We all know that there's a God. Oh, I, I claimed to be an atheist for 25 years before I got saved. But I knew, I knew there was more than this because God put eternity in our hearts, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that you know there's more than this, just intuitively in your heart. This is just the launching pad for eternity. So we know, we know, and God is drawing us all more and more as we study his word. You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, online at thepackinghouse.org. Let's rejoin Pastor Ed in our study of the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This section breaks up into three parts, his arrival in Galilee, 43 to 46, and then this infant son healed, uh, 46 to 50, and the father finds faith, 51 to 54. And all of it is this sign, this picture of God doing something that only God could do so that we would believe and trust him that he died for our sins so that we might spend eternity with him. There it is, all wrapped up into one. So 
Jesus is the Lord of healing. In this case, it's over a long distance, kind of like the water to wine thing. I, I want to know why. Uh, not arrogantly. I just, I just uh, when I go to heaven, I'm, I'm praying there's a checkout for DVDs. You know, the, like this one. You could just say, okay, well, how about the order to wine one? Oh, that's kind of busy. They're all checked out right now, but if you come back after two, you can uh, watch it happen. Did he move faster than light? Did he zip over, put something in the water, and then zip back and nobody saw him because he was so fast? Probably not. <laughs> he probably just tweaked the molecules from 40 feet away or whatever it was. But the result is we go, this has got to be God. This is not a magician. This is not a miracle worker. This is God himself. That's where this is going. Okay, let's jump in. Verse 43. Now after two days, two days at the Samaritan village of Sychar, this woman had introduced him to the rest of the village and many came to Christ, came to salvation there. After two days there, he departed and went to Galilee. Now, going from Sychar to Cana, that village where he had turned water to wine, it goes right past the, the road up to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth's kind of on the side of a hill. They called it a mountain, but we would say it's kind of like the Crafton Hills if you go up uh, you know, Sand Canyon Road there. It's that kind of a road up to Nazareth. Small village, less than 100 families there for sure, probably less than 100 people. And there was a carpenter shop there, right? So Joseph is the carpenter, Jesus is the apprentice, and everybody knows him. And nobody in the town believes he's God. So John is telling this because when you look over in Matthew 13, remember John wrote his gospel last after the other three were done. Matthew 13, Mark 6, and Luke 4 all describe Jesus going to Nazareth and not being received. None of, he's the homeboy. Nobody believes that he is God Almighty for sure. That's why this next verse makes sense because John is writing this knowing that you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that he would be the fourth one. Verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You find that in Matthew 13, 57. And Mark 6, 4, and Luke 4, 24. I'll give it on the tape so you guys can study if you want to. So this is contrasting the believing response of the Samaritans that weren't even Jews and the unbelief of people that knew him well. And I think there's a lesson there. The danger is that you become familiar with things of God. You handle them so much that they become commonplace. And often a person with the best spiritual opportunity are blind to what God is doing. I think that's what's going on in America. We have the best opportunity in the world to see God working in the world, and the number of people going to church is decreasing. Why is that? They become familiar. They think they know. Why is it that some of the worst kids at the school are the pastor's kids. I don't mean my kids, of course. Mine were, <laughs> ours were perfect, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a byword, isn't it? Oh, he's a pastor's kid. Well, no wonder he's in trouble. How many times has he been arrested? He's a pastor's kid, that kind of a thing. So, 
There's a famous atheist from the last century, Ingersoll, Colonel Robert Ingersoll, and he was a public blasphemer, which was a really big thing in those days. Today it happens every day in America. It brought dishonor to, on a good family's name in those days, but he was famous for it, stand up and public speak and then blaspheme God's name. And, but I mention him because his father was a pastor, his grandfather was a pastor, and his great-great-grandfather was. The most famous atheist in America in the early 1900s, late 1800s, was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of a pastor. Familiarity sometimes breeds contempt. We have to be careful when we become familiar with the stories in the Bible and we just say, well, I understand that already. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans receding. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the area in northern Israel, it's spectacularly beautiful. Quick commercial, you need to go to Israel. And you'll find there this area around the Sea of Galilee is very warm. It's below sea level, about 700 feet, kind of like the Dead Sea in California. And, but it's tropical in that it, it has mangoes and avocados and all kinds of citrus trees and grapevines and on and on. It's a beautiful fertile valley. And this lake is warm to swim in and it's just an inviting place. That's where Jesus grew up. And it's to this area that he's coming from Jerusalem. Why from Jerusalem? He had gone to the feast, we're told, in Jerusalem. Now, the Gospel of John is the only gospel that's really in chronological order. We know how many years that Jesus ministered based on the number of feasts of Passover that are recorded in the Gospel of John. This is the first year of Jesus' ministry, and he has just left Jerusalem from the feast of Passover, and he goes up to his own city where he grew up in. Verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, those around received him this time, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem during the feast, for they had gone to the feast also. So Jesus was doing hundreds, thousands of miracles, even in Jerusalem, just a few days before going to Samaria and now coming to the north. John doesn't record them. They're absent from this gospel. Again, he wants us to focus in on these signs that describe Jesus as the Messiah so that we might believe. Now, his home people were excited to see him. Uh, he's the local kid. They wanted to see more of these miracles. They were looking for entertainment. They weren't looking for the Messiah. Verse 46 so when Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So a few weeks earlier, this wedding feast in Cana was the occasion for Jesus to turn water to wine. And many people were showing up because they wanted to see more. Now, we're told this Greek in the Greek language, this is a royal official, this nobleman, it says here in the New King James. We can't be sure whether he's Jewish or Roman from the title given to him, but we believe he's the same one who we'll come again to in the book of Acts. Acts 13 mentions someone, a member of Herod's household, who was saved. 
it appears to be this same man. So this nobleman, this somehow relative, don't know whether he's a cousin, a nephew, a brother of Herod, Antipas, is here, and he comes looking for Jesus. Sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is about 16 miles away. As a crow flies, if you want to fly with a crow, but if you have to take the car like the rest of us, it's about 27 miles. So he has come up from the Sea of Galilee, from the city of Capernaum that's on the, it's a beach city on the lake, and he comes looking for Jesus. When he heard that Jesus, verse 47, had come out of Judea, the southern part of Israel, into Galilee, north, about 70 miles, he went to him. And he implored him. The Greek suggests that he is repeatedly, it's in the active tense, begging him over and over again. He he came in desperation without much understanding. He had mixed motives. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. He didn't believe he was the Messiah. He probably just thought he was a local miracle, maybe a magician, but it seemed that the people who got healed stayed that way. So he was willing to humble himself and come and ask for Jesus to heal his son. We believe his son was an infant, maybe the first year of life. Uh, The Greek word that's used could be as old as seven, but the way the man has responded, he seems to be so desperate that this is a baby that probably has a fever. And they're in the first century, and medicine is a disaster. There's almost no medicine that worked, and most of it was harmful, And if it wasn't harmful, it would kill you. So going to a doctor was a a real stretch. But he's coming, and he doesn't know who he's talking to, which to me makes it kind of fun. Few come to, to Jesus with pure motives. Have you noticed that? I don't know about your motives, but mine were not pure. I was desperate. I just needed help. And it wasn't because I really thought he was God or there was a God. In fact, my prayer was, God, if you're there, do something. (laughs) Wow, what great faith, Pastor. I think anybody can probably stir up that much faith. God, if you're there, show me in a way I can't deny it. Whoa, now there's a prayer (laughs) that brings results. And this man is afraid. He was desperate. He was desperate for help. God's mercy is so broad that he'll come to people with wrong motives. I see it happening all the time. Well, he said so, James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a promise. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. God, please help me. Hebrews 10, 22, Let us draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed by repenting. Come to him, cry out to him, and he will hear and he will respond. That's his promise. You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. You'll find us online at thepackinghouse.org. And that's a great place to go and hear this program again. 
and find more information about the Packing House Christian Fellowship. That's thepackinghouse.org. You can also call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. You know, it takes a team to bring you Grow in Grace, and we look to our listeners to help make all this possible. If you'd like to make a contribution, you can call 844-77-GRACE, and as you do, be sure to request our special offer available for a gift of any amount. It's a book written by Chuck Smith titled, Why Grace Changes Everything. You'll discover the difference grace will make for you. It transforms our lives into something beautiful. Read all about it in this Christian classic, and we'll send it your way when you support Grow in Grace with a gift of any amount. You can reach us again at 844-77-GRACE. Again, that's 844-77-GRACE. You know, and even if you're not in a position to be able to give, we still want to hear from you. Your email would be a great encouragement to Pastor Ed. This lets us know where Grow in Grace is having an impact by God's grace. Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us for the next Grow in Grace when Pastor Ed Ray will pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your love.